The group practice definition under the Stark Law is the mother of all Stark Law definitions, and many physician-owned entities may not meet all of the elements. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. Today, we are going to do part one of the group practice definition under the Stark Law. And as I indicated in the teaser, this is the mother of all Stark Law definitions. And it's a prerequisite definition in order to get into some of the applicable exceptions, with the biggest one being the in-office ancillary services exception. So typically, the combination of the group practice definition with the in-office ancillary services exception is how CMS and the government believes that most physician offices should be operating to be consistent with the Stark Law for the group practices designated health services. And so I should probably start at the beginning by saying that, you know, most of the services that are performed within a physician practice are not designated health services. So a simple physician-patient encounter for which an, an evaluation and management code is billed, that is not considered to be a designated health service. Now, I put one caveat out there, and that is if the group practice is owned by a hospital and the hospital has designated that group practice as a provider-based practice, because it is provider-based, then all those services are billed as outpatient hospital services, which are DHS. So you've got to be careful there with respect to if you are in a group practice. And hospitals can own group practices. So let me say that. So they can own group practices that are not provider-based. But once they become provider-based, then all of the services that are billed are outpatient hospital services, which is a designated health service. But for the most part, that's not going to be the case. And so this is for all group practices uh, that are either owned by physicians or are owned by hospitals or some other entity uh, that is owning these physician practices for the offering of direct patient care services and also the services that are ancillary to those direct patient care services like laboratory, x-rays, therapy, outpatient prescription drugs, and the like. 
So in part one, I am going to be going through the group practice definition. Then in part two, I will drill down into the in-office ancillary services exception. And a lot of you may be wondering, well, is this something that the government's really concerned about? And in the part two, I'll go into some little bit more detail. But there are a few settlements out there. There was an Alabama a diagnostic physicians group that paid in a settlement amount $24.5 million, a cardiovascular group out of New York, uh, $1.33 million, uh, physicians as well as, uh, as a urology uh, group ended up paying one, basically $1 million. And also there's a bone and joint professional corporation that paid uh, $1.2 million. So there are settlements out there that do exist, and like I said, I will talk a little bit more about those in Part 2. And the in-office ancillary services exception applies to both ownership and compensation arrangements. But even if you are in a group practice and you're simply paying a physician either as a 1099 independent contractor or a W-2 employee, you do not need to meet the group practice definition or the in-office ancillary services exception because you could comply with the compensation exceptions like the employment exception, the personal services arrangement exception, or the fair market value exceptions. So this is just a prerequisite to get into the in-office ancillary services exception. So here are the basic tenets or requirements of the group practice definition. Well, first off, it has to be a single legal entity. So it is a primary purpose of that single legal entity is for the performance of physician services. So the primary focus is the performance of direct patient care services. And it can be of any form. It could be a professional corporation, limited liability company, uh, an incorporation, a foundation, a partnership, a nonprofit, uh, or a facility practice plan under an academic medical center. And it can be owned by any person or entity, including physicians, hospitals, nonprofits, foundations, equity investors, so sometimes because of the state law limitations on the corporate practice of medicine, there may be various forms in which the organization is owned and controlled, including it, in some cases that you would have a titular owner of a physician practice and basically be managed by a management service organization. And the single legal entity can own subsidiaries, like for management purposes, building and equipment, personnel leasing, billing, etc. And it can also have multiple state-specific entities, and it also can have operating divisions. So if you want to set up operating division, like even in the same city that you have, if this is a multi-specialty practice, you can have the orthopedics division versus the oncology division versus the primary care division. So that is the single legal entity requirement. The next question is, who must perform the services? Well, they either have to be performed, and here I'm focusing on the designated health services. Uh, this designated health services has to be performed personally by the referring physician or personally by another physician who is in the same group practice as the referring physician, so your, your fellow partner physician, or under personal su supervision of the referring physician or another physician who's in the same group practice, like a tech. So if you have an x-ray tech, 
then as long as that x-ray tech is operating under the personal supervision of either the referring physician or a physician within the group practice, then that would qualify. So next, I'm going to be turning to the uh, physician criteria of the group practice. So like I indicated previously, it can be owned by any any person or entity, but it must contain at least two or more physicians. These are either physician owners, employees, or independent contractors. And each physician in the group must sub perform substantially their full range of services that the physician routinely provides. So med medical care, consultation, diagnosis, or treatment. So that, uh, you know, for, for members, they would have to provide their full range of services that they normally provide. And to perform those services, the physicians must use jointly this, the items or services from the group practice. So they have to share the office. Uh, they have to share the facilities, equipment, the staff, like the nursing staff, the clerical staff, the billing staff, etc. And now for members, and I'll get to the distinction between the members and a physicians in a group practice, but the members also have a 75% test. To be a member of a group practice, which is distinguished from a physician in the group practice, but to be a member of the group practice, substantially all of the physician's patient care services must be performed within the group practice. And they define substantially as 75%. So again, the focus here is on the patient care services. So let's say by way of example, we have a physician who is 50% medical director for a hospital, and the other 50% of his or her time is spent within the group practice, then you have 100% of that physician's time of patient care services are being provided within the group practice. So you look at just their patient care services to determine whether or not they meet the 75% test. And then also, like for a new physician, uh, for the, to meet the 75% test, you can ramp up for 12 months uh, for the physician to meet uh, the 75% test. And all the services of those physicians must be billed under the group's billing number. And that's, that's a huge one. And that, because sometimes, like especially with practice plans owned by academic medical centers, for some reason it could be because of reimbursement, they continue, continue the legacy billing number of the previous uh, entity before it was acquired, again, by way of example, by the academic medical center. So if you are billing under multiple billing numbers, group billing numbers, then you're going to blow the test. So it has to be, all the services have to be billed under the group's billing numbers. And then all the income is treated as receipts of the group. And then overhead expenses and income must be allocated and distributed in accordance with a previously determined methodology. So at the beginning of the year, if we're going to say that all the expenses and the income are going to be divided based upon work RVUs or a certain percentage, then that all has to be determined in advance uh, of the incurrence of those expenses or the receipt of that income. So now I'm going to turn to the difference between a member of a group practice and a physician in a group practice. And uh, like we lawyers like to say, you draw these circles uh, by saying that uh, members are 
physicians in the group practice, but all physicians in the group practice are not members of the group practice or may not be members of the group practice. So to be a member of a group practice, then the substantial tests of the full range of patient care services must be provided through that group practice. And also the members of the group practice must meet the 75% test of their patient care services being provided within the group. Um, but physicians in the group practice do not. So you can have a part-time employed physician or an independent contractor physician, and as long as they're providing services within the group practice, then they are deemed to be physicians in the group practice, even though they may not be members of the group practice. Again, I'm going granular here just because this mother of all definitions is so granular. So it's uh, the reason to unpack all of this. So, you know, dealing with the facility or building in which services are provided, a physician in a group practice must provide the services in the group practice's facilities, but the members of the group practice do not. So if you have a physician uh, who's a W-2 employee, 1099 independent contractor, but does not meet the full range of care or the 75% test that I referred to, then they have to provide all their services in the group practices facilities. But, you know, with respect to profits, physicians in the group practice can participate in the profit distribution based upon a methodology that I'll get to in just a second. Uh, but the, the profit issue is not in the employment exception. So that's maybe one of the reasons why you want to fit within the group practice definition and also the in-office ancillary services exception so you can share profit uh, even with your physicians in the group practice. Again, those could be part-time employees or independent contractors. Now, under this definition, like many of the other aspects of the Stark Law, that compensation paid to the physicians, and this is either members of the group practice or physicians in the group practice, cannot be based directly or indirectly on the volume or value of referrals. Now, as I indicated, there can be a share of overall profits or productivity bonus, and the productivity bonus can be based upon only personally performed services or services that are incident to, and I'll deal with that in just a second. The distribution of expenses and income, like I said, there needs to be a formula that's determined and the formula for the allocation of expenses or income can be adjusted from time to time. And another requirement is that the operation of the group practice has to be in the form of a unified business, meaning there is a centralized decision-making process like a board or committee of the group practice. There has to be consolidated billing accounting and financial reporting. So on the finance side, that has to be consolidated. But you can segregate the revenue uh, in the practice based upon divisions. Like I said before, you can segregate that into divisions like in locations. We can have office practice A as a division, office practice B as a division, and office practice C. Or likewise, you can do that uh, based upon specialties. Uh, you can divide all of that. So you know, dealing with the profits of the group practice that the physicians can participate in the profits, but they cannot be directly, which is interesting because you know, as we're talking about profits, they drop the word indirectly. 
So can you indirectly compensate the physicians for profit from designated health services? The answer is yes, you just can't do it directly. So the CMS, through the regulations, have said, okay, here are examples of what is not deemed to be direct. So one is that if profits are divided on a per capita, so per person basis, then everyone receives an equal share, and then therefore it's not direct. The next test is there are two 5% tests, and that is that the revenue from designated health services through the group is less than 5% of the group practice's overall revenue, and those revenues that are allocated to each physician are less than 5% of the physician's total cash compensation. So if you meet the two 5% test, then it's deemed not to be direct. But the most popular one is that you divide the designated health services profits Similarly, with all non-DHS revenue from any federal health care program. And I typically refer to this as a surrogate methodology. So you can adopt a surrogate methodology for the division of profits, like if you're going to divide the profit from DHS revenue uh, based upon work RVUs. So if I am producing 20% of the work RVUs of the overall group, then I can be allocated 20% of the DHS profit. So it's a surrogate methodology, and I'm not receiving directly the profit from the DHS that I'm ordering. A couple of other surrogate methods, you base it based upon the number of ENM encounters uh, in comparison with the overall group, the patient panel number, in comparison with the overall group, or the number of procedures performed. So here we're not looking at the value of the profit being generated. You're just looking at the number of procedures. So those are surrogate ways of determining the allocation or distribution of profits. And if you do want to form pools for profit, you can do that and allocate the profits in a pool, but each pool has to have at least five uh, physicians that are in each applicable pool and for all practical purposes and that was this is new January 1 2022 is a physician cannot participate in multiple pools so a physician can only participate in one pool if you're going to come up with uh, different pools in which physicians can participate in the DHS profit and again I'm looking as I stated before like in practice sites or by specialty and then the last aspect that I will cover is productivity bonuses. Productivity bonuses can be paid either for the physician's personally performed services, very similar to the employment exception, or in a manner incident to services in a manner that is not directly related to the volume or value of DHS being ordered by that physician. So you, you can give credit uh, for the incident to services being performed, uh, but it cannot be uh, direct. So what do I mean by incident to services? Well, uh, incident two, if we're just talking evaluation and management, that is not designated health service. Uh, it's only like if, if the uh, incident two is the performance of designated health services like therapy services. Those can be performed incident two or laboratory or drugs that are being ordered. And a physician can supervise 
and that physician's their supervision could be related to the performance of those instant to designated health services. So, so some examples are like nurse midwives, clinical psychologists, social workers, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, clinical nurse specialists, and the like. So the ordering of those services can be credited to the supervising physician, uh, and that would be deemed to be incident two. Uh, and remember that shared services in the hospital setting are not designated health services. So those are not uh, DHS as long as they are billed by a group practice. So with that, I have come to the end of part one of the mother of all definitions of group practice. So now is the time for the three Captain Integrity Punch Points. Captain Integrity Punch Point number one is the group practice definition has many sub-definitions, and you have to be careful of each of those sub-definitions. Captain Integrity Punch Point number two is members of a group practice is a more finite group versus physicians in a group practice. So remember the 75% test, substantially all uh, range of service have to be uh, designated under the members, but not necessarily physicians in a group practice. And Captain Integrity Punch Point number three, if you do not meet all of the group practice definitions, then you cannot avail yourself of the in-office ancillary services exception. But as I indicated at the beginning, there are other exceptions that you can look at even if you fail the group practice definition. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.